Would you pray with me as we come to look at 1 Peter together? Father in heaven, we pray that you would open our eyes to your word. You might, by your spirit, teach us from your word, change our hearts and minds by your spirit, help us respond wisely, desire to live your way, obey what you say, even when it's hard. If we hear confronting things today, God, help us to not shut our ears or our minds. Give us teachable hearts and a willingness to follow Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. It is 64 AD in Rome and a devastating fire breaks out. First slide, please. Emperor Nero is likely several miles away in his palace and when he hears the news, he rushes to Rome and tries to organise the firefights. The fire lasts six days, seven nights. Ten out of the 14 parts of the city are destroyed. 12,000 people are killed. The rumour arose that Nero had started the fire so he could rebuild the city the way he wanted. The Roman historian Tacitus, writing soon after, believed that the fire started accidentally. But he says that more and more people started suspecting the emperor. So to shift the blame, Nero decided to blame the Christians because the Jewish and Christian parts of the city had not burned. Tacitus says that Christians at the time were hated for their abominations and their hatred of mankind. You see, back then Christians didn't participate in social activities like the theatre or sports or even go in the army due to the pagan worship connected with these things. And so people thought that Christians hated others. Nero blamed the Christians for the fire with refined cruelty. Many were harassed, arrested, condemned. Some were dressed in furs and killed by dogs for amusement. Others were set on fire to light up Nero's gardens, all to satisfy the cruelty of one person, the emperor. Can you imagine being a Christian in Rome at that time? It's in this context, around this time, that Peter writes this letter. And yes, he writes to Christians in Turkey and not Rome, but I'm sure word of Nero's actions spread fast. We don't know how far the persecution spread, but he disliked Christians to say the least. He's the emperor when Peter writes. So submitting to the emperor, to others in authority, would not have been easy in Peter's day. And it's not easy in ours either. Why do it? That's what we're thinking about today. What are we to do? Remember from last week, Peter told these Christians in verse 9, if you look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, he had said, you're God's chosen and holy people set apart from the world for God, and that's us too. It's true of everyone who's built their life on Jesus. Through trusting in Jesus, we've been included in God's people. And now in verse 11, the Apostle Peter refers to his hearers as dear friends or dearly beloved ones, those who are loved by Peter and by God. And he says they're strangers. It's a word that means foreigners, 
I mean, few other people in the church would have had Roman citizenship or citizenship in the Roman Empire. And none of them would have had genuine citizenship in this world because as Peter's saying, they are also exiles. They're away from home in another country. And that's because they and we are not at home in this world. We're waiting for our heavenly inheritance, our heavenly country. We're not at home in this world, but we are sojourners, strangers. That's where the title for this 1 Peter sermon series comes from. It means we're just passing through. We're here in this world temporarily. And now because this world and the Roman Empire is not their real and ultimate home, because they're citizens of heaven, Peter says they need to live like that. And because we are citizens of heaven more than we are of Australia, we need to live like that. So he says, verse 11, So I urge you to abstain from sinful desires which war against the soul. We're urged here to reject our natural impulses. I don't know what your natural impulses direct you to do. Is it to strive for acceptance by others? Avoid conflict at all costs. That natural impulse for survival, self-protection. We need to reject our fleshly lusts. That's what the words literally mean. Our, our sinful, selfish desires that make us want to give in to sin. So that means we need to live differently from our neighbor, neighbors, those around us. And like in any war, it's going to take many battles, not just one. It means every day when I wake up, God is asking me to choose, to be choosing to fight desires, to be selfishly putting myself first, seeking my pleasure at others' expense, or putting others down with my words and more. Our sinful desires are what we must fight. Peter will come to outline what more of those are in chapter 4. But now he focuses in on what the opposite looks like. What it looks like when we do say no to selfish desires. And he says we're to be conducting ourselves, conducting yourselves in honorably among the Gentiles, that's pagan unbelievers, showing good works. And that brings us to our first of three points this morning. Do good. At Bundy, we promoted the Gospel Coalition Australia Conference in October. And one of the preachers at that was a man called Rory Shiner from Western Australia. He said at that conference about engaging with our culture that the only moral failure, the only failure is moral failure. The only failure is moral failure. He said if our evangelism or programs fail, okay, don't fail morally. Rather stick to God, be faithful to God, faithful to your family. And isn't it true that moral failures, adultery, abuse, Pornography, pedophilia, have, they've undermined the cause of the gospel so much in recent decades and in the past. Such sin and failure has ruined lives, ruined churches, shipwrecked people's faith. Part of our doing good as followers of Jesus is not failing morally. But Rory Shiner also said, keep Christianity weird. 
He said, it's okay to believe weird things. Weird keeps us different. It can even be attractive. So, so we believe that the fate of the world rests on a crucified Jewish prophet. We believe in angels and demons. We sing together. We believe in a new world. The creator God loves us. We believe that God will bring justice and judgments, keep Christianity weird. I mean, I'd also add, keep being weird by having people into your home, really caring about people at work or at school, loving people extravagantly, having hope in and believing there is a purpose in your suffering. That's difference. Our weirdness, our difference and our integrity will be seen, verse 12, in our good works. So even if people slander us, they are to see our good works. We heard that first century Christians were not participating in popular entertainment and sports because of their pagan worship. And that made some people think that Christians hated socialising. Peter is saying here, you can't withdraw from the worlds. People need to be able to see your good works. Today, Christians can be slandered for holding or speaking biblical views on gender, on marriage, on sexual sin. Soon in Christians in Victoria, soon, we could not only, might not only be slandered but even punished for praying that God would change a Christian person or even their own child's transgender feelings. A conversation on gender between two consenting adults could be prosecuted. Not that that should silence us. A Christian school or organisation could be punished for wanting to hire or fire based on staff holding to their values, belief and practice. You can be. Maybe you have been slandered, verbally abused for your views. I had a Hindu person slander me for saying I believed Jesus is the only way to God. How should we respond in the face of slander or, or verbal abuse? Being told here, we had to respond with love and by doing good. Not with aggressiveness, but with Humility and gentleness. Maybe we could respond with an invitation to have lunch or coffee with that person, for them to have coffee with us so we can talk. Could we respond with a smile? Could you respond with a smile to the person who's been ignoring you at school and offer to pray for someone's sick family member even when they'd rejected you because of your Christian views? Or from our growth group, Generosity Project, you're doing good might be the generosity you show to other staff or colleagues in the time you give someone, the words that you speak. It could be shown in our care for the poor, the refugee, vulnerable. You see, it's more than good manners. It's more than being nice. It's good deeds. And doing good without pride without hypocrisy. And it's about doing good not to earn God's favour, but because God has already made us one of his people through Jesus. I ask, are you someone who does good 
Remember Jesus said to his followers in Matthew chapter 5, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so that they might see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. It seems that Peter had this teaching in mind here when he's writing this letter. For he says in verse 12 that there will be unbelievers who will glorify God on the day he visits us. He seems to be saying that our lives should point to God and to his character so that people are attracted to Christ and moved to follow him. And then as people trust in Jesus and are converted, they too will glorify God when Jesus returns. They will glorify him in their worship when Jesus returns. And this is supported because a few verses down in 3 verse 1, we're told there of a wife's unbelieving husband, that that he can be won over without a word by the way their wives live. We'll come to that in a couple of weeks. The point is Christian behaviour, doing good, is powerful. It's a powerful witness. I know an older couple who raised their children to know and follow Jesus, but their daughter turned away from the Lord in her teenage years and she stopped going to church. She became quite antagonistic to Christianity, never wanted to talk about Jesus, but her parents continued to love her, relate to her, pray for her. And when their daughter had children of her own, her parents, the kids' grandparents, they were involved in their grandchildren's lives. Her parents, the couple that I know, they shared meals, they showed love in practical ways, every so often taking their grandkids to church when they looked after them, even inviting their daughter to church sometimes. And do you know that about 10 years ago, when their daughter was in her 40s, she just had this new openness and willingness to reconnect with God. She started attending church again. And her parents rejoiced when she said that she now trusted in the Lord Jesus and was wanting to follow him. It was a gracious answer to their many prayers and it was her parents' patient, loving care in word and deed without being pushy and argumentative. It was used by God to save their daughter and her family, to the glory of God. Point two is a submit to authorities. And submitting to authority, it's part of the good we are to do. Good is the repeated word, repeated theme in this passage. Verse 13, submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors. This theme of submission here will continue for the next couple of weeks as we think about submission in the context of masters and marriages. But here we're thinking about submitting to humans who have governing authority. Remember, Nero is the emperor at this time. And he was happy to blame Christians for the great fire of Rome and to arrest and cruelly kill them. To many Roman rulers, Christians were opposed to their values, their way of life, worship of idols, 
And still God's inspired word through the apostle here says, submit. Submit to the emperor or the king as the supreme authority and to governors, that's all the leaders, rulers, commanders, military, civil who are under him. Let's not forget that Pontius Pilate was a Roman governor who sentenced the Lord Jesus to death by crucifixion. Roman emperors were not nice, democratic government ministers who could be removed after an election. And they were not convinced of moral principles like the equality of all people, human rights. And yet the role of the state is mentioned in verse 14. God's purpose for them is that they would punish those who do evil and praise or, or commend those who do good. See, that's supposed to be what those in authority do. In an ideal world, in a good situation, if a Christian is wrongly accused of doing evil, the government should only punish those who are guilty. But we know that in our fallen world, our sinful world, things don't always work out like that, do they? Sometimes rulers commit despicable evil, make unjust decisions, and there's no doubt that some governments totally fail at this. And just think of what life is like in North Korea, Iran or Pakistan. So oppressive and unjust. Peter is not naive about the goodness of governing rulers who were never Christians in his day. It's implied, I think he's implying, that they're among the foolish people of verse 15. And later, next time, he's going to make clear that following passage that, that we can suffer for doing good. And that's why we do well to remember those words of Jesus in Matthew 5. We are blessed when we are persecuted. But the principle is still, God's command is still, submit to every human authority. How we respond to this is really going to be influenced by our experience and our culture. If we've come from a culture where we've experienced corrupt authorities, police brutality, or Muslim Sharia law, heeding what God says here will be really hard. Many Australians too have a, a negative view of submission and we see that in everything from people not wearing masks, students disobeying their teachers, horrible brutality shown towards police. And when we've experienced authority being abused, it can, be, it can lead us to resent the idea of submission, it can resent us to lead the idea that I should put myself under an authority. But notice, please, that Peter does not encourage disobedience, civil disobedience, until Rome's justice improves. No. He's not anti-Rome. It's the same in Romans chapter 13. God is saying to the Turkish believers that Peter first wrote to, and God is saying to us, submit to governing authorities. In Victoria, that has included us obeying the directions of the chief health officer in the pandemic state of emergency, even when we disagreed, even when we felt it unjust. You see, God calls us to obey. We're not in authority. 
we are to submit. And yet, there is a limit. Do you remember that when the Hebrew midwives were commanded to murder babies, when Daniel was commanded to pray to the king, when his three friends were commanded to bow down before an idol, when the apostles were commanded to stop speaking about Jesus, in each case those believers disobeyed. They did not submit. As we read in Acts 5 verse 29, for we must obey God rather than men. But let's not make excuses for our failure to obey the authorities. And let's not take on our culture's individualistic, autonomous thinking and claim that we're in charge and I can do what I want, thank you. I understand that these matters are complicated. I understand that in the COVID lockdowns, some churches have met in person. Some Christians have wanted to meet in person against government directions. Because, for example, Hebrews chapter 10 says, do not give up meeting together. But at Bundy, our elders have been convicted of the importance of obeying Scripture and its clear teaching to submit to government. And up until today, we've not been meeting in person because it was a temporary lockdown and restriction for the public good. We didn't gather for the sake of people's lives, out of love for our neighbour that was driving us, which scripture also commands, and also so that Jesus' name would not be shamed in the eyes of others in our society. And so as a church and the Presbyterian Church of Victoria has sought to please God in our submission in this case. In what way do you find it hardest to submit to authority? Is it in not driving over the speed limit? Not holding your phone while you drive? Is it you not being completely honest on your tax return? Kids, maybe you don't want to always obey the school rules or the school teacher. At least not when they're not. If they're not looking, then it's okay. Maybe you think that. But yes, kids, you're, as we heard in the kids' talk, your school teacher, your school principal, they are human authorities over you too that God wants you to obey. Or maybe we've not been QR coding in when we enter church or, or a shop or building, not been keeping our mask on. Let me say personally, I've disagreed with the vaccine mandates, the state government stopping people working without vaccination. I've expressed my views in writing to the Premier, the, my local MP, and I'll express my views again when I come to vote next year too. Yes, in the past I've attended protests as well. They've been legal. Your elders have written to the state governments asking for the distinction between vaccinated and unvaccinated attending church together to be removed so that we can attend church together. The letter is on the roadmap page of our website. You might like to write as well about that or another issue. I've disagreed myself with many of Daniel Andrews' decisions, their goodness, their justice, and the attitude that's communicated in the way that things are expressed. But unless he asks me to disobey God and sin, then I am to obey. 
My God tells me to obey. God asks you to submit and obey too. I know Christians have had different views on these matters, some strongly held beliefs. We all need to listen to and love and respect one another. As you've heard from communications from Neil and at Bundy, we don't want to divide over these things. But please don't explain away verse 13. How does God want you to respond? I think the big question though is why? What's going to motivate me to do this? Why obey, especially when I don't want to, or when I'm convinced it violates my rights, I'm convinced that what is demanded is harsh, unfair, unjust. Why submit? It's to please God. Point three. Come with me again as we will go through the passage and notice where this theme comes out. Peter said in verse 13, didn't he? Submit to every human authority because of the Lord. That means as part of your serving and following the Lord Jesus. And in verse 12, he's the one who's coming back. He's the Lord God who will visit us when he returns. So we're to live to please him. Submitting will glorify God when we see him. It's for God's sake. Or verse 15 says our submitting, which is part of our continuing to do good, he says it's God's will. And we do it because we're God's slaves. I don't know if you noticed there in verse 16 that oxymoron, the the opposites that are put together, that we're to submit because we're freed people and yet we're also because we're God's slaves. It's a paradox. Even though many Peter wrote to They were actual slaves who had masters. He is saying spiritually, in God's view, they are free. They and we are people who've been freed from sin and its bondage. The chains which bound us to sin and death and eternal judgment have been broken, broken by the Lord Jesus who died, rose again and is returning. Christ has set us free. But we're not free from responsibility now, free to do whatever we want. You see, as Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 22, he says also that we're freed from sin and yet we're also slaves to God. That is, we've been freed to live under God, to flourish in the life that God intended for us, in relationship with him, experiencing eternal life, forever. There's actually nothing better. Do you know that living God's way under him is actually good? Living God's way is good. And so now in order to please God, to please the God who has set us free through Jesus, we live for him. And that means verse 17 with a fear of God, with awe-filled respect of God, we are to honour and show respect to everyone, Peter says. That's even your enemy. False accuser, the police officer, show respect to the Centrelink worker, person at DHHS you talk to, the immigration worker, the one who disagrees with you on COVID or vaccines, the one who disagrees with you on questions of morality. Doing good also means we're to love the brothers and sisters. 
Our brothers and sisters, we're told. That's not just individually. Peter's speaking here about loving them as a church collectively. So will you love your brothers and sisters by serving them at Bundy? Including, listening to, speaking to one another. Lastly, Peter says, honour, that is, hold up, hold up, value, respect the emperor. I would find it really hard to honour and respect an emperor who killed Christians for fun. Honouring and respecting such leaders is not easy. I think we do well to remember the example of our Lord Jesus who said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Remember the example of the Lord Jesus who he himself, he submitted to the authorities even unto death and when he was innocent. And we'll think more about that next week. The principle of honouring the king still applies to us. And so even if all our friends, whether in conversation or online, bag, disrespect the prime minister, the premier, even if everyone around you ignores their directions and disobeys where to be different, even if we stand out where to be different, it's God's will that his saved people Submit to governing authorities. And when the time comes, I think it's not if but when, when the time comes for us to disobey the government in order to obey God, like the martyrs of the early church, may we not disrespect them still. But let's be willing to suffer the consequences, whether it's prison or death, entrusting our lives to God And maybe another helpful way to honour the king is by praying for those who rule over us, including our queen who enters this last phase of her earthly life. As I wrap up and to help bring home the passage, I wonder if one of these people and their choices describes how God wants you to respond to. Are you like Tom who wants to not give in to sinful desires but remember he's in a war and fights, crying out for the Spirit's strength? Are you like Kelly who decides to be more open with her friend about why she follows Jesus and the difference he's made in her weird life, even if she cops criticism for it? Are you like Fred who's in a difficult season of life and he's faithfully caring for his unwell family member. And that, that is, he's remembering that is the good work that he's doing at the moment, one which can be a witness to others and bring glory to God. Are you like Sally, who will intentionally keep wearing her mask inside church or the shops, as annoying as it is, as directed by the government, not because, and she will do it. She prays that she will do it, not with pride or looking down on others who aren't doing that, but because she knows it pleases the Lord. Are you like Arthur, 
who has a new conviction that God wants him to obey the government, not because they deserve it, not because of a fear of punishment, but because it's God's will. Or lastly, are you like Sandra, who's praying for a new desire and energy in the weariness she feels now, praying for new desire and energy to do good to her work colleagues, do good to her church family, to serve them in love out of her comfort zone because she wants to glorify her Lord Jesus. Whoever we are, if we belong to Jesus and we know that heaven is our home, we'll do good. We'll submit to the authorities to please our good. Would you pray with me? Let's pray. Father in heaven, so often we're selfish, we give in to sinful desires, we so often want to be in charge of our own lives. Please forgive us for our sin, our our desire for autonomy. We ask, Father God, that you might hear us as we confess our sin. Pray that you might, by your spirit, change us. Please make us more like the Lord Jesus who himself submitted to unjust authorities. Lord, we pray that you might give us a desire to do good, to love one another, to love those around us with all the spirit, that, all the strength that your spirit gives. Please, Father God, make us more like Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.